Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you uh, so much for your word, for your goodness, for your love and your grace and your mercy that's just so amazing. Lord, you're so good to us, and we know that by your spirit, you want to speak to our hearts today. Your Holy Spirit is our comforter. Your Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And so, Lord, we want to embrace that today. We want to embrace your truth so it would affect our lives, that we would bring glory and honor to you in all that we do. And so please do all that work supernaturally in our hearts today as only you can do. By the power of your Holy Spirit, through the teaching of your word, we just ask that you would do that work, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if you're new or visiting or anything, or if you forgot, we have a habit. We teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line through the Bible. And the way we've been doing that uh, for a good little while now is we do uh, an Old Testament piece and then a New Testament piece. And we're kind of marching forward with each. And we just finished the book of Amos in the Old Testament. And prior to that, we finished Hebrews in the New Testament. And so... Since we're going back to, since we finished Amos, we're going to go back to the New Testament. And so what book comes after Hebrews? James. All right, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 13. I love doing that stuff. I really felt like the Lord uh, wanted to, wanted me to sort of introduce the book of James a little bit before we get into the book of James. And that's because, well, I'll just tell you this way. When I was a young person, I believe with all my heart that I had a genuine salvation experience at 10 years of age. I was, I was convicted of my sin. I was, it was explained to me that Jesus died for my sin. I was... Um, I wanted to be a Christian, and I felt like I knew what that meant. I was baptized. Uh, I was on my way. And then somewhere around high school time, I got to where I really just didn't want to have anything to do with anything that wasn't all about me and my fun. And, you know, this is a not an unusual story, I guess, necessarily. Uh, but, you know, I had that time, and I would say I was a theological argument at the time, uh, depending on where you're at on the sovereignty scale. Uh, I either lost my salvation or I came close or I didn't or I whatever, 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 and we're not going to argue about all that, right? But I remember in those days, I still had a Bible. I remember my mother sent me to college with a Bible, and... I remember not liking the book of James. I remember that very clearly. Oh, I love those verses about how God loves me and God, you know, Jesus died for me and God's going to take care of me and God's going to bless me. But James was just, just felt legalistic. Because I was the kind of guy, I think of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, how much, uh, uh, what must I do to be saved or to inherit eternal life? Now, my paraphrase on that is, good teacher, how much can I get away with and still squeak into heaven? That was my life, right? Dear God, now I lay me down to sleep. 
please help me squeak into heaven and still have my fun. Don't mess with me too much. And I think to a person that lives like that, James is not your favorite book. James is not your favorite book. And so I think before we get into the book of James, I want to just lay a little bit of a groundwork. Can I do that? Okay, to the four of you, I'm going to do that. To the rest of you, just ride along, all right? Matthew chapter 13. On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude sat on the shore. I'm just going to read this kind of like a narrative, so don't worry, I'm not going to go through all this verse by verse necessarily. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, and he said, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, that's one type of soil, and the birds came, or one, yeah, one type of soil, all the same seed, by the way, the seed is the word of God. Same seed, four different kinds of soil. So the first kind fell on the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them, and some seed fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he talks to the disciples a little bit, and, and then uh, jump over to verse 18, if you would. He says, he says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When he to hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. And let me just clarify that. The, the understand is not so much uh, a good translation as we understand it. It's, it's one that doesn't receive. It's not like only the, uh, you have to have a certain intellectual capacity to receive the Lord, right? It doesn't mean that at all. Obviously, that's, uh, that wouldn't be consistent with the rest of Scripture. But what it does mean is, you know, to the person that doesn't receive the word, who says, I don't want anything to do with that, that's like the, the hard soil that was by the wayside. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. We might say that was me when I was uh, in my youth, right? Like when I was 10 years old, I received it with joy, but I had no, I had no, no depth, no, uh, no strong rooting. And so when, you know, when challenge came, I stumbled. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So, you know, there's a kind of person that, you know, loves the Lord, loves everything I would say, everything the Lord would say, everything the scripture would say. But, you know, life's just busy. And, you know, I got to manage my stuff and I got to live my life. And, you know, I'll get around to that God thing when it's convenient. That's the crowded soil. But he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word 
and understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So notice this, this is good soil. Some of it bears a hundredfold. Some of it bears 30. Some of it bears 60. But it's all good soil because it bears fruit. Okay? Now, there's four types of soil. There's the hard soil by the wayside that says, no, not interested. There's the rocky soil that says, hey, that's awesome, hallelujah. And then six months later, you're like, where's that guy at? There's the crowded soil that says, awesome, hallelujah, but um, I'm too busy. And then there's the good soil that says, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I just want God to lead me and guide me, and I want to follow him wherever he takes me. Which of the four soils do we want to be? Um, before you answer, we're in church. <laughs> Which of the four do you want to be? A, B, C, or D? D. D. Or to this side of the room, one, two, three, or four? Four. Right. Well, then you're okay with the book of James. Get it? If, and you know, I sometimes pull my hair out a little bit when I hear people argue and argue and argue and argue and argue and write books and read books and go to conferences and debates and this and that and this and that to argue the theology of what happens to those, those two groups in the middle, right? The guy that says, no thanks, is he saved? No, he's lost. The guy that says, I want to be good soil, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Is he saved? Yes. What about those other two? The guy that, you know, makes a, what seems to be a sincere profession of faith but then falls away. Is he saved? Not committing, I like that. We argue about that endlessly. Or, I'm sorry, they argue about that endlessly theologians right you've heard people say can you lose your salvation who wants to know that's a like a good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life it's a loaded question can you lose your salvation that's a loaded question it is fundamentally it is fundamentally the wrong question to ask because if I'm worried about who can lose my salvation I'm worried about what I'm asking is can I, like, walk away and still go to heaven? And if you've ever asked me that question, I can't remember by, off the top of my head if, you've ever, if any of you have asked me that or who has and who hasn't. Uh, I'm going to bet that you probably walked away feeling like, well, that dumb guy didn't answer my question. Because I'm really not going to answer that question, except with another question. Why do you ask? Hey, can I, um, like, have a little piece of Jesus, but then, like, be so consumed in the world, right? Paul tells Timothy, you know, no soldier that's involved in active combat becomes entangled with the affairs of this life. I like that word entangled. He doesn't become entangled in the affairs of his life. Can you imagine a soldier that's like, 
on the battlefield, shells are flying everywhere, and he's talking about what the stock market's doing back in the States? I can't imagine that. So no soldier becomes entangled in the affairs of this life. Why? Because he wants to please his commander. And so there's four types of soil. You showed up for church this morning. I'm going to guess that you're not the first type. But can I tell you this also? As far as churches go, too often, catch me on this, too often the body of Christ is trying to appeal to those second type. They're trying to draw in those second two groups, right? Oh, come to Jesus. It'll be pie in the sky till you die. Piece of cake. Come on. Come on. What are we doing? We're, we're, we're trying to recruit, honestly, rocky soil Christians when we do that. Oh, you know, there's no big commitment. You just come and, and he's going to take good care of you. And, you know, you keep it. That's all right. Come on. Because we just want to fill the pews. Because if we fill the pews, guess what else we fill? The box. Right? And so let's just, you know, hey, guys, come on. It's, come on, guys, come on. Did Jesus do that kind of evangelism? Hey, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Man, this guy, if you were a strategist, that guy was a rich, young ruler. He had it all. He was a man of great influence. This was the key. This guy would have been the linchpin to grow the church. What a strategy to usher in the rich, young ruler. Man, oh, he came with that, lo- with that question like, hey, what must I do to have eternal life? All Jesus, I mean, he's like setting him up. All Jesus had to do was reel him in. So why do you call me good? Jesus says. Let's get the record straight, first of all. You're bluffing, and I know it. Why do you call me good? Jesus called him out. And then Jesus says, hey, keep all the commandments. Oh, yeah, I've done all those. Okay, then sell what you have and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. Jesus had a golden opportunity to grow the church. And he by all practical evangelical standards, he blew it. Now, let's give Jesus the proper respect. Did he blow it? No. He's not interested in recruiting shallow soil people. He's not interested in recruiting uh, crowded soil people. Right? He's interested in, in, in saving souls, mature Christians. So, Everybody okay being a good soil Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in church now, remember? All right, let's just try it. Everybody want to be a good soil Christian? Oh, that's awesome. Okay, then turn to James. Chapter 1. This book is this book of James is interesting. It's a good mirror for self-evaluation of maturity as well as a charge for us to be mature. There are over 50 imperative verbs in this book. An imperative verb is like a command. Do this. Go there. You know, eat this. That, those are imperative verbs. And so... Uh, this book is loaded with those. And so... We have to be kind of like, 
okay, I want to be a mature Christian. This might, uh, you know, this book might read my mail a little bit, and it also might encourage me to go on to more maturity, and that's really the purpose of the book. And so, I think that's all I want to say about that. He also points out, you know, he'll talk about, like, faith and works. Now, we say by works? No. But if we have faith, should we have works? Yes. yes. Sorry, those of you who have heard this a million times, but, you know, I always say, if, <clears throat> if I get a weather report and there's a tornado coming and I say, hey, hey guys, there's a tornado coming and it's going to touch down on this building in 14 minutes. And then I keep on talking and I don't discuss the, the exit plan, then I did not really believe that there's a tornado coming. I mean, that's not rocket science, right? And so if I believe there's a tornado coming, then there are, there are going to be some works, some actions that are obviously reflective of the fact that I believe what I say I'm believing. And so as Christians, if we believe what we're believing as Christians, there are going to be some things that should be uh, evidences of that. So it's not like those things save us, but those things are evidences of that. So, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, there are four Jameses in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John, uh, sons of Zebedee. There's another disciple named James, which is uh, sort of less well-known, if you will. There's a James that's a, a, an obscure father. of. Uh, remember, there was, a, there was Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples. There was another guy named Judas. Well, his dad was named James, all right? You could save that for a trivia question sometime. It'll, it might be there. Uh, and then there was a fourth guy, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and that's the James we're talking about that wrote this book. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Why is he half-brother? Because they shared the same mother, but not the same father. Mary and Joseph were James's parents, biologically. And so, he was also uh, the leader, if you will, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 15 uh, that James appears to be presiding sort of over that Jerusalem council um, you recall when, um, when uh, Paul was going out on his missionary journeys and Gentiles were getting saved. There was a big hubbub in the church because the original, you know, the church started amongst Jewish people who got saved, right? And uh, now when Gentiles are getting saved, non-Jews, when they're getting saved, do they have to, like, do any of the Jewish stuff or do they just receive Jesus? Like, do they have to be circumcised? And, you know, the Jewish Christians said they did. The Gentile Christians say that's, that's not the point. We're just following Jesus. And so they had this big meeting. I mean, honestly, we think of it like, yeah, well, we tend to think of it outside that cultural context. We think, what's the big deal, you know? Yeah, don't circumcise. Don't, don't make them feel like they have to be circumcised. But in that church at, at that time, it was a big deal. So they went to Jerusalem to the flagship church at the time, right? And they had, uh, you know, lots, big meeting, and James presided over that meeting, and uh, he did it with great wisdom. And so uh, that's the James that we're talking about. But notice, 
If you were James, the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, the flagship church, the mother church, or if you were James, the half-brother of Jesus, and you're going to write a letter to everybody, how would you introduce yourself? James, the half-brother of Jesus, who watched him grow up and, you know, was kind of an eyewitness and kind of knew all the, knew all the inside scoop on, on Jesus and has lots of insight, gleaned it over the years, carried that into my new role as the, as the uh, senior high uh, uh, official pastor of the church in Jerusalem, uh, here to share some wisdom with you. Is that how you open up this book? Something like that? Maybe a little bit? James says, James, a bondservant of God. He almost hides the fact that he's the brother of Jesus. He starts this book out really, I think, with a great tone of great humility. And who's it written to? The 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So this is not necessarily to a, a letter to a particular church like, you know, many of Paul's letters. This is rather a, a letter to the, um, to the scattered uh, Jewish believers at the time. Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Well, there's a good way to start a letter, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He doesn't say if you fall into various trials. He says when you fall into various trials. The immature Christian, remember we're talking, this book is for mature Christians. The immature Christian says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to avoid trials or circumvent trials or buy my way out of trials or insure my way out of trials or manipulate my way out of trials or negotiate my way out of trials? Good teacher, what must I do to get out of trials in life? Because I don't want to go through them. The mature Christian, James would say, should count it all joy when that person falls into various trials. Maybe not one, maybe not even one category, but various trials. Consider it all joy, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How can we do that? We do that by recognizing that that's what, sometimes those are the circumstances. Those are the external circumstances that God uses in our lives to make us strong. If you had no challenges in life of any kind, how strong of a person do you think you'd be? Probably be pretty selfish, probably be pretty entitled, probably have a pretty lousy attitude, probably be pretty hard to get along with. You'd probably walk into a room and watch people scatter. Right? He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your, pa of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, the word perfect doesn't mean like perfect like we think of perfect. It means complete. So the idea is moving toward maturity. That's the, that's the word we're looking for. We're looking for completeness. The idea is that trials produce maturity in us, in ways that nothing else can. If you've ever been through a trial and you've persevered through that trial and, you know, honestly in my life sometimes I've done it better than others, 
admittedly. But if you found yourself persevering through a trial, I think you might, might agree that on the other side of it, you feel like, you know what? Number one, I'm stronger. Number two, there's probably not a better way that I could have learned what I needed to learn in that trial. Trials always bring us lessons. Flip over to the left, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. It's one of my favorite verses. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We like those kind of verses. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We like those kind of verses. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations. Now, wait a minute. Yeah, we glory in tribulations. Knowing the tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So can I tell you this? When we go through trials, I understand. Listen, I can whine with the best of them, right? Back. Did everybody hear her? Was that Susie? Was that you? No. The girl behind you? That's my wife. You're noncommittal today. I like that. Uh, that was my wife. She knows I can whine. Pretty good at it. Right? I know how to whine. But, you know, if I'm going to be a mature Christian, I need to learn how to not whine. I need to learn how to rejoice in these things. I need to learn how to count it all joy when I go through these things because this thing's going to make me stronger. Can I tell you this? Number one effect, this thing's going to make you stronger. Number two effect, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. After Romans is 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. Paul says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so you also will partake of the consolation. So what's he saying here? He's saying, not only do tribulations make us stronger and develop 
in our lives perseverance and character and hope. But tribulations in our life also give us opportunity to console others. Because guess what? Have you ever noticed this? I know you have. If you're going through something and one of your brothers or sisters has also gone through that something and they can tell you, yeah, God carried me through that. That brings tremendous comfort to you, doesn't it? Way more than any kind of, you know, word of wisdom I might have or even a Bible study in itself. But there's something about the applied word of God as it plays out that as we go through stuff, as we've been through stuff, as we experience all that, we have the privilege of blessing others with it. That's why it's so important. I know I keep hammering it, but it's, I'll, I'll keep hammering. That's why it's so important for the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. It's so important for the body of Christ to be the body of Christ because each of you has an experience. Each of you has a history. Each of you has dealt with things that uh, your combination of things that you've dealt with are unique to you. I haven't dealt with all the things that you've dealt with. You haven't dealt with some things that I've dealt with. And we all have our own combination of things that are unique to us. And with that, as God brings us through those things and we develop depth of character as we navigate those things, we're able to encourage one another with those things. So you know what we should do when those things come? We should count it what? All joy. All joy. It doesn't have to be all happiness. Don't have to be all like fake smile, but we can count it all joy, right? We can count it all joy. Verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, I want to tell you this. Um, as we read through this book, James feels a little bit like he's writing Proverbs. You know, if you read Proverbs, it's like, this nugget and then this nugget and this nugget and this nugget and sometimes they're tied together and sometimes they're not and with James sometimes they're maybe seem like they're loosely tied together but honestly each of them stands alone this is a great verse to stand alone this is a great verse to memorize if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him that's a great verse it doesn't say anything about education doesn't say anything about your pedigree doesn't say anything about your intellect doesn't say anything about knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom are fundamentally different. Knowledge is, hey, I know the tornado's coming. Wisdom is, what do I do with that knowledge? Right? Wisdom is amazing. Wisdom is, you know, when, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? It takes wisdom to answer that question. Well, whose picture's on that coin? That's knowledge, right? You get knowledge sometimes by observation, by experience. Looks like Caesar's picture's on that coin. Wisdom tells you what to do with that. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. One of my personal favorites, Paul's about ready to get mobbed by a group of Jewish leaders, Right? And he looks out in the crowd and he, said, and he notices that part of them are Pharisees and part of them are Sadducees. And so, like any good theologian, he's able to hit their hot buttons. That's always kind of fun. 
And he says, because the Pharisees, or the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believe that strongly. And Paul stands up in front of this mob that's about ready to kill him. And he said, hey, guys, I'm just standing here before you because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees are like, yeah. And the Sadducees are like, you're crazy. And next thing you know, they start fighting each other. Paul slips out the back door. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Wisdom says, what do I do with the knowledge? And you know, that kind of wisdom, that kind of wisdom you don't learn in school. You learn facts in school. You learn knowledge in school. You learn wisdom in life. You learn wisdom in life. And you get wisdom by asking God for the wisdom. You get wisdom by experiencing what is it like, what is it like to, as best as I can, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to live out the principles and precepts outlined in the Word of God, and as I do that, every step I take, I feel a little bit more, okay, I got this. I got this, not in and of myself, not in a prideful sort of a way, but in a thank you, Lord, for some wisdom sort of a way. Our world desperately needs wisdom. The body of Christ desperately needs wisdom. So if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask God. Ask God. Now the context here, he just mentioned it. He's talking about various trials. So he's talking about trials, and then he's talking about wisdom. And, to, you know, I believe you could tie these together to say that, you know, we need wisdom more than just perseverance. We need perseverance, but we need wisdom in our trials, not only to persevere, but also to understand what kind of lessons we need to learn as we're going. You know, I think we would all agree if we've been, as we go through trials, there are certain lessons we learn. That's part of the wisdom that God gives us. So if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if we're going to trust God, we're going to trust God. If we're going to ask wisdom, we're going to expect that God is able to direct us and guide us and lead us. And, and don't like second guess, like how does that line up with my, my modern psychology and how does that line up with my opinions and, and how does that... You ever uh, try to make a decision and you, and you got too many opinions? You ever done that? Now, there's, there's something to be said for, like, uh, I was telling somebody earlier. The Bible says um, in the council of, uh, in the multitude of counselors, there's, there's wisdom. There's safety, right? So there's something to be said for seeking wise counsel for decisions. But there's also a time, something to be said for, okay, I'm taking all my inputs I'm praying, I'm asking God for wisdom, and I'm going to make a decision, right? You can keep second-guessing yourself. Next thing you know, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, if you second-guess uh, what the Lord is doing. He goes on, verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. So again, this maybe feels like kind of a change of gears, a new proverb, but uh, it still stands on its own here, right? The idea here is the rich person shouldn't trust in his riches, uh, particularly as it relates to trials, 
You know, sometimes uh, the rich thinks that, you know, I'm, I'm above going through trials. You ever seen that, right? Sometimes a, a rich person can have that attitude. Well, I'm above the, that, that trial. Well, you know, there's some things a rich person can, can avoid that other people may not be able to, but there are other problems that rich people have that other people don't necessarily have. So it's really just a different set of problems, honestly. And so uh, the rich should not glory in his riches. The lowly brother, on the other hand, is taken care of by God. And the rich is taken care of by God. The, the poor, mature Christian, who takes care of him? God. The rich, mature Christian, who takes care of him? God. Right? So he's saying, be careful if you're the rich, mature Christian to think that you take care of yourself. God still takes care of you. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers in the grass. Its flower falls, its beautiful appearance, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Guess what? Riches don't last. It's a hard reality that the riches of this world in and of themselves have no eternal value. None. None. And so we've got to be careful not to put our trust in riches. If we have some resources, it's important that we use them for the kingdom, right? And it uh, doesn't mean you can't, I don't know, you know what I mean. We just need to be careful not to trust in riches, I think the scripture would tell us. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so here we have temptation. Now, temptation is, in a sense, the corollary of trials, right? Trials are hard things that I have to go through externally, like hard situations. Well, a temptation is internally, but it's still a hard thing that I have to go through, a hard thing that I have to endure, a hard thing that I have to persevere and seek the Lord and ask God for wisdom and, and be led by His Spirit and, and all of that. I have to go through, I have to, to do all of that to go through temptation. So he says, in the same way we count it all joy to, as we fall into various trials, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he is approved, when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised by those who love him. In the same way we go through temptation, when we come out on the other side, we feel stronger. I'm sorry, trials. When we go through trials, we come out on the other side, we feel stronger. Also, when we go through temptation and go through temptation victoriously, we come out stronger. And we can celebrate that. You know, in the same way the immature tr Christian likes to avoid trials, the immature Christian would also like to avoid temptation because he lacks strength. We don't want to be those people. Notice also it says here, Blessed is a man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown, of, the crown of life which the Lord has promised, what? To those who love him. You know, God loves us. Really, that's mentioned here to, to us who love him. But when we love him, we love God. 
that should be our motivator for enduring temptation, right? I want to please God. Not, again, not to earn points with him, not to make him love me anymore because it's impossible to make him love me anymore, but I'm just so thankful for all that he's done for me that I want to please him. And that's a great motivator. If I want to please him, I want to do what's right before him, <clears throat> I want to live a godly life, I want to live a life that honors him, then I'm going to want to endure temptation. Now let no one say when he's tempted, I've been tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, but does, but, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So this is an important point of clarification. God allows temptation in our lives to make us stronger. God allows trials in our lives to make us stronger. But God does not put temptation before us to try to trip us up. God does not try to make us fail. It's important. Again, it's important we keep Scripture in the context of Scripture. God is conforming us into the image of Christ. He's molding us and shaping us, and as he does that, part of how he does that is as he's molding us to be more Christ-like, part of how he does that is to allow us to endure temptation, but he's not leading us into temptation just to make us fall. God wants us to walk in righteousness. Peter tells us that God has given us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us salvation. He takes care of us. He leads us and guides us. He motivates us by his love. And so he makes it, makes it available for us to endure temptation. First Corinthians tells us there's no temptation that has seized you except as common to man. I don't want to butcher it. 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, this verse gets butchered quite a bit. Here's how it goes. Well, I know God can't give me anything I can't handle. Right? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, number one, no temptation has overtaken you except such, such as is common to man. So the temptation that you're going through is really not unique to you. You might feel like your case is special, and I can tell you this, whenever anybody's flirting with temptation, oftentimes it feels like, well, my situation's unique. Well, that's contrary to this verse. Your situation's not unique. But God is faithful during your temptation. So in the midst of your temptation, God is faithful. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And he knows what you're able. He knows what you're capable of. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with that temptation will also make the way of escape 
that you may be able to bear it. So God makes a way of escape, but we have to take the path of escape. That's important. We have to do our part. And so that's a great verse to keep in mind. Um, Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So he uses sort of a a metaphor here of, you know, human conception, birth, and, and human growth, and finally death. It's an interesting metaphor. So, if we have a desire to sin, that's sort of the starting point. He says, when, how, here's, how, here's how temptation works, James says. When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Let me say, first of all, that word drawn away means, you know what it means? It means drawn away. Drawn away from What? drawn away from fellowship with God. That's why really the, 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 best, the best preventative medicine, if you will, for temptation is to stay close to God, is to remember what God did for us and what God continues to do for us, to remember how much God loves us, to remember that God gives us his word and to read God's word and to see how God has dealt with his children since the foundation of time, to be prayerful, to be connected into a healthy uh, body of believers. And those are all the things that, if we're tempted, we're drawn away from. Those are the healthy things. Those are the good preventative maintenance things. And then when desire is conceived, he says, it gives birth to sin. I love what Damien Kyle says. He says, uh, sin is what happens when the desire to sin and the opportunity to sin come together, just like conception. The desire to sin and the opportunity to sin come together. Now, you know, if we struggle with different things, sometimes we can restrict our opportunity to sin, right? And so let's say if, I'm, if I have a temptation for a certain thing, well, I'll just say this. In my medical practice, sometimes I'll encounter people that are trying to get beyond uh, alcoholism, okay? And they're, at a point, they're in my office, and they're at a point where they're talking through it, and, you know, and, you know, I really want to stop, and 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 I say, well, how do you go home every night? Oh, I'll go right past the old, the old hangout where me and the guys always, you know, used to kind of hang out, you know what I mean? Gets kind of a fond familiarity in his look you know in his voice as he starts telling you this oh yeah every 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 night on my way home yeah you know i say you know what why don't you go home a different route right why don't you go through some other holler on the way home right and you know Proverbs says the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter until the full day, right? The more you do that, 
easier it gets. More you do that, easier it gets. More you do that, easier it gets. And it's easier to avoid temptation when you're one step removed from it. The converse is true. When you're into it, it's, it's hard to get out. I always, tell, I always say, it's easier for me to say no to the first cookie than the 30th. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. The first cookie. Because you know, you know why I eat the first cookie? Every time, you know, whenever I eat the first cookie, you know why I eat that first cookie? Because I'm only going to eat one. Any moron knows that. I'm just going to eat one. Okay, two. And then after about five, you're like, what do you, gonna, what do you say on number five? What the heck is somewhere in there? Somewhere between 5 and 10, we say, I'm going to, no, not stop. I'm going to start my diet tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow would be a good day to start my diet. You know, if I, if I stop, if I stay away from the first one, it's a lot easier to just say, hmm, not today. How much more so is sin? Well, cookies can be sinful, but anyway, you know what I mean. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, when the, when the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin come together, that's conception. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And by that time, before it brings forth death, the only solution, please catch this, the only solution is repentance. The only solution is repentance. It's not a bad feeling like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's like repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that brings about a change of attitude. It's a change of direction. It's, nope, that's not me anymore. That's repentance. Lord, please help me. Please give me the strength. Please give me the power by your Holy Spirit to walk away, to resist. Please help me understand that verse in Galatians says, uh, says uh, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I want that to be me. And that's repentance. That's how we deal with it. And you know, wherever we're at in life, with any particular issue, repentance is always available because Jesus Christ died for us. So repentance is always available. Verse 16, do not be deceived. <coughs> My beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by, his word, by the word of the truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so, whereas sin leads to death, everything from God leads to life. Every good gift, every perfect gift 
is really that which brings us closer to God, closer to fellowship with God. Jesus died on a cross, that's a, that's a, that's a perfect gift, right? That allows us salvation. Everything in our, in our life that brings us closer to him is from him. God is good. Everything about God is light. No shadow. God is light, and yet no shadow. No shadow, no turning. No variation. God is light. God is always light. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, again, dealing with, uh, with temptations, he's like, here's an example. Here's a very practical, very, very, very practical nugget. He says, so then. You want to follow God, who's the father of lights, as opposed to following our own, our own desires, our own flesh, all of that? Well, here's one good way to start. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. God gave us, gave us two ears that are open and one mouth with a lid, with a gate, actually teeth and lips, two gates, right? Two ears that are open, one mouth with a gate. You know, sometime in your leisure, go back and read Acts chapter 15. I talked about James, the author of this book, in the Jerusalem Council. One of the amazing things, as you read through that, that story, you can just, you can feel the tension. And you ever had like a meeting at work or, you know, thankfully we don't really have those here, but you know, a church meeting, if you've ever been in a church meeting that's tense or a, or a work meeting that's tense and some people believe this way and some people believe this way and, and you know, heaven forbid you're the, you're the moderator of this meeting, right? James was that guy. And he, I love the way it plays out. It's like he lets everybody talk, and then he talks. Well into the chapter. Everybody's had their thing, everybody says, and, and by the time James talks, I wish I had a videotape of it, honestly. By the time James talks, everybody just like, because of his wisdom, because of his influence, it's like there's a lot that went into James's influence prior to Acts chapter 15. You can tell just by reading Acts chapter 15 because when he opens his mouth, everybody's like, all right, sounds good. We're all in agreement. And they all walk out, everything's resolved, right? By the way, they didn't make everybody get circumcised. Okay, so you know the story. But you know, I think we all want to be people of influence in some ways. We, we want to be people that make a difference in this world for the kingdom. Let's tell you, a very, very, and I need to hear this myself, believe me, a very practical exercise of that is to be swift to listen, or quick, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. If I can control wrath, if I can control my tongue, and oh, by the way, 
be quick to listen? Because really, let's be honest. Raise your hand if you think you're awesome. <laughs> My grandson back there. Honest kid in the room, right? We all think we're awesome. Raise your hand if you think you've got an opinion that is the opinion that needs to be heard in any given discussion. Right? Okay, so we're going to talk about, you know, should we eat, you know, pizza or hamburgers? And any moron knows we should eat pizza. And, you know, that's my opinion. And we all have our opinions about various things. And we're all pretty convinced because it's an opinion, by definition, we think ours is right. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I uh, you know, sometimes I think, I remember a long time ago uh, in our marital journey. It's a journey. Uh, I remember a long time ago. Tracy would say, uh, like, you know, I'd come home, I'd come home from work and, and, she wanted to, like, you know, process the day or the kids or life or whatever like that. And I would immediately respond. And she would say, don't what? Fix me or fix it, right? Ladies, am I, talk am I talking right? Well, everybody check your pulse. Everybody, okay? She'd say, don't, don't try to fix me. Just, just listen. I just want you to listen. And I remember, like, <laughs> you kidding? Apparently you don't understand. I've been at work all day. People have come into my office in and out, in and out, in and out, asking my advice, and I offer it to them. I'm offering it to you for free. And would you believe she had the audacity not to appreciate that? <laughs> you believe that? It's amazing. It's amazing. So I need to be swift to hear, to listen, to really hear, and then slow to speak because there's a possibility, and if you're a fly on the wall in our house, you'd, you'd agree. There's a possibility that dad could be wrong. There's also a possibility everybody else could be wrong. There's a possibility that I can be wrong. So I need to make myself be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. If there's a nugget of practical wisdom, how would the world look? How would families look? How would churches look? How would politics work if everybody in the world practiced that verse? Just think about it. If everybody in the world were quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, we'd have a lot of problems go away, wouldn't we? We'd have a lot of problems go away. Well, in our own little world, Okay, I don't control world events or politics or anything like that. But in my own little world, I can control me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
And so I can, I can work on being swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Because I know that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And I like this implanted word. That's, that brings us back to that parable of the soils. Jesus said the seed was the word of God and it implants in our hearts depending on the soil type. And we want to be the good soil type. And if we're going to be the good soil type, we've got to lay our... I mean, think about the soil analogy right? You got to, you know, if you're preparing the garden, there's something that goes into preparing the garden, preparing the soil, getting the rocks out, getting the weeds out, you know, tilling the ground, preparing the soil so it can receive the word. And so let's lay aside all the garbage. Let's lay aside the filthiness. Let's lay aside the rocks and the weeds, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We need to receive the word with humility and let it work to save our souls. We let it do the work in our lives. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his, face, his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. That's what it's like to, be a, to just read the word, Right? Sometimes I think it's a healthy exercise, maybe even as we, like on Sunday mornings or maybe, maybe sometime on Sunday evening or whatever, go back and like read the chapter that we read today and let it kind of have a couple of input points in our brain. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, sometimes we can be hearers of the word and not doers only, or hearers of the word only, not doers of the word. And that doesn't do us any good. You ever had a situation where you meet somebody Maybe it's at a, you know, you're at a gathering or whatever, maybe even here. You meet somebody, you shake their hand, say, hi, I'm so-and-so. And they say, hi, I'm so-and-so. And then, you know, you walk over here and, you know, your wife says, who is that person you just met? What do you say? I forgot. It was so long ago. Right? We do that. We do that. You know, and we do that with the, with the Scripture, right? We need to make ourselves be doers of the Word. Okay, what does the Bible say? And how does that impact my life? And I need to live accordingly. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? He said, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on the rock. Rain comes, storms, everything else like that, and the house stands firm. But whoever hears these words of mine both groups, both people hear the same word. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a guy who builds his house on the sand. Same storms. Same storms as this guy. Same word as this guy. The only difference is this guy does it, this guy does it, and the only end result difference is this guy's house stands, this guy's house crashes. So is it possible to hear the word and still have your, the home of your life crash? Yes. By not doing the word. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I saw a thing this week. Like, you wouldn't dress, you know, say Super Bowl Sunday. You wouldn't expect the teams to come out all dressed, lined up, all prepared, you know, all the hoopla, blah, 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 blah. And there's never a kickoff, right? 
like you dressed for the game, but you didn't play the game, right? We're reading the word, we're doing the word. Simple as that. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word of, of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. And so, I like this. Let he who looks in, into the perfect law of liberty, like look in the mirror like it's the perfect law of liberty, like, Lord, please, please use this word to expose me. Show me what I, what I need. Show me where those spots are on my, on my face, like a mirror that need attention. Show me what I need to, to be doing differently. And Lord, lead me, as David said, lead me in the way everlasting. By the way, if any, anyone among you thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, James has a lot to say about the tongue, by the way. This is the second time in this chapter alone. If, anyone you, if any one of you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So, we need to look into the law of liberty, into real self-evaluation, And if we're not able to bridle our own tongue, we probably need a little more reflection. But pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I love that. So here's a good example of what fruitfulness ought to look like in our lives. Again, it's not all-encompassing, but it's a good example. Number one, it cares for those people that can't return payment, Right? If you do something for a widow or an orphan, particularly in that culture, they couldn't pay you back. So we should be diligent, deliberate, determined to bless those that, can, that uh, cannot pay us back. You know, we love doing things for people that say, oh, you're awesome, right? We give, somebody, we, you know, we give something to somebody so they can say we're awesome, right? Well, that's, that's not the point. Pure, that means purely motivated and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. That means to, to attend to their needs and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. The world can stain us, can, I, can it not? And, you know, we've said a million times before, we, we, we live this life according to, uh, we mentioned last week, the plumb line of God's word right? The plumb line is the line of truth. And as, unfortunately, as we live in a society that seems to move farther and farther away from the plumb line, the plumb line needs to be what shows itself, right? We need to be careful we're not spotted, we're not stained by the world. It's hard. We have to live in this world, but not be of this world, Jesus said. And so, in that, and that looks different for different people. But we all need to have some, um, some thought and prayer given to that, right? That we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So, God's word gives us straightforward instruction for Christian maturity. If you want to be a shallow soil Christian, Book of James is probably not your favorite. If you want to be a crowded soil Christian, Book of James is probably not your favorite. But guess what? You're going to be super frustrated. Super disillusioned. My heart breaks 
for people that are sort of sold a pie-in-the-sky Christianity, right? Like, you know, come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. My heart breaks for those people because guess what? All the problems don't go away. And then they're horribly disillusioned. And so I like this book much more than I did when I was trying to live in sin. I like this book because it helps us to self-evaluate, helps us to know, helps us to look in the mirror a little bit, and helps us to, um, gives us nuggets for moving forward in Christian maturity. We won't be exempt from trials and temptations if we're mature Christians, but we'll be blessed as God takes us through those things, as God takes us through the ups and downs of life and we'll come out stronger on the end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you uh, desire to bring us to maturity. Lord, as Hebrews, uh, I believe, says, you know, so many people are just like babies drinking milk, and we need, we need to move on to maturity. And Lord, we thank you that you make that possible for us. You give us the instructions for that. And so thank you for this book, Lord, that it helps us to evaluate uh, those areas that need to be more mature. And so please guide us and lead us accordingly and have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have an awesome, awesome week.